of Israel and oftentimes other nations. Uh, they would work with the kings and help them to understand God's will for big decision making. So Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom, key player number one. The second key player in the story is the Assyrians, whose capital city was Nineveh. And so we'll read about the Ninevites. So in the capital city, in the New York City of one of the greatest empires in the known world that's ever existed, second biggest empire, except for Alexander the Great's empire. So huge empire. They were the the big kid on the block, powerful, and they were thoroughly pagan. They worshiped many gods. And what we know, not at this time, but later, maybe 50 years later from the time Jonah uh, was alive and ministering, that actually Assyria will come down and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. So they'll actually conquer the northern kingdom and send much of the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. So see the Assyrians, the Ninevites. And uh, one, one thing to know, uh, another important part of this drama is that probably at this time, the Assyrians weren't as powerful as they would later come to be. Uh, between 783 and 745 BC, uh, the Assyrian Empire was in something of a stall. They experienced many military defeats, probably because a uh, king at that time wasn't as competent as some of the other kings that would come through and lead the Assyrian Empire. But we also know what's really interesting is that at this same time that probably Jonah went to, and we'll see he actually will go to Nineveh, the capital, that at that time in that region, we know this from archaeological finds, that there was a major earthquake, a major earthquake that happened. And there was also a profound solar eclipse that I think really freaked out the people living in the ancient Near East at this time. And we know this from archaeological finds where the Assyrians themselves actually talk about these earthquakes and uh, the solar eclipse and several other natural disasters that were happening at this time. Now, why do I bring that up? Probably it was softening the hearts of the Assyrians because as we'll see, Jonah will go uh, to Nineveh and the Ninevites will actually, spoiler alert, respond to Jonah's message And they will actually turn and repent. And so uh, scholars have often thought, man, what would make a powerful nation do that? Perhaps God had been softening their heart through these natural phenomena that were happening. So they were in a place when Jonah came ready to hear his message. Another important character, the whale. You've heard about this guy? Yeah, the whale. Turns out there's actually nothing of that much importance to the whale. And it's not actually a whale. It's a great fish. We don't know of whales being in the Mediterranean. So it's probably some other great fish. Uh, But the book of Jonah has almost nothing to do with a whale. Sorry. (laughs) If if you were hoping to hear about the whale, except for this. Except for this. Do not underestimate the ways and the means and the lengths to which God's saving arm will go. You cannot run too far from the Lord. You cannot sink too deep to escape his love. And that's all I'll say about the whale. God can and will use anything in his good creation to enact his plan for his people. You cannot run too far. Now, the final thing I'll say about this as a way of introduction to the book of Jonah is that it is a book filled with satire. Do you know what satire is? Uh, The definition for satire is this, using wit, irony, or sarcasm, or other comic means, to hold up human vice and folly to ridicule and scorn. That's the book of Jonah. It's one of the reasons I love the Bible. There's all forms of literature. This is a book of satire in which Jonah himself is the object of scorn and ridicule. I don't know if you knew that about Jonah. Jonah's not a hero in his own book. He's an anti-hero. Now, if you've got your Bible, would you open with me to the book of Jonah? 
we're not going to read the whole thing. It's four chapters, but you can go back and read the whole thing yourself after the service today or if you've already read it. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you the whole story by telling you the, the big plot turns. I'm going to do that because I think unless we see the end from the beginning, you won't actually get the most important message of the book of Jonah, okay? So at the beginning of, of, of the book, Jonah, the prophet, he is called by God to speak a prophecy to the Ninevites, a foreign nation. Remember Ryan talked about last week. Sometimes in the prophets, the prophecy is against the evil and the sin and the injustice of foreign nations. So God wants Jonah to go and tell the Ninevites that their evil has come up before God, it has displeased God, and in 40 days, God will bring judgment on their people. But Jonah runs the opposite direction. He runs as far away as he can run until God cuts short his escape by sending a massive storm. Jonah is thrown overboard by the other sailors on this ship that he's paid to to board and, and take passage. But even that doesn't stop God. God rescues Jonah by sending a great fish to swallow him up. He sits in the fish for three days, and then the fish spits him out onto dry land, and then God calls Jonah a second time, go and take my message to the Ninevites. This time, Jonah listens, he goes, and Jonah goes into the city of Nineveh, the great city of Nineveh, and he proclaims and prophesies the coming judgment of God. And the Ninevites listen, and they repent, and they turn from their evil ways. And they ask for God's forgiveness, and God relents. God turns from his judgment. And then Jonah, we see him sulking outside the city because he's upset that they've repented. He's upset that God has relented and not brought the judgment against this enemy nation. And God teaches Jonah a miraculous lesson by a small plant that grows up over him. So we'll see all that. We'll go through all that. I just want to give you the highlights, okay? So now turn with me. Look at chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll, we'll, we'll see what the big message is. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Mattai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, Tarshish was in Spain, so he hopped on a, on, a, on a boat on the far east of the Mediterranean. He's planning to take a ship all the way to the far west end of the Mediterranean. He's trying to get literally as far away as he can go. Now, does Tarshish need to hear the good news of God's love and kindness? Of course. So, God's going to send somebody else, but God says, no, I'm not sending you, Jonah. So, uh, one of the things we have to remember, it's not... Just, hey, is it bad to go here? Is it bad to go there? Is it bad to go to Tarshish instead of Nineveh? That's, that is irrelevant. What matters is what is God asking you to do? What is God asking you to do? So Jonah flees as far away from the calling of God as he possibly can. Now, you heard all the other narrative twists. He gets to the end of the book and he's had a second chance and he does go to Nineveh and he takes the message to the Ninevites and they do repent. So turn with me to chapter 4 verse 1 and look at Jonah's response now. After all of this has happened, this, it says this, chapter 4 verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, 
Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. What? What is going on? Why does he run in the first place, and then why is he so furious that God relents from his disaster? This is the message of Jonah. Jonah knew of God's love. He knew God is a God of great compassion, a God of chesed, the Hebrew word for steadfast, enduring love. We've talked about that a couple times in the prophets. And he knew that if he took this message to the evil Ninevites, they would repent and God would relent. And you know what? He hated the Ninevites so much, that's why he fled and went the opposite direction. That's the story, that's the message of Jonah. That our hearts are so different than God that we can have so much hate and anger for the people that have been against us that we don't even want them to know this God and his love. Now actually, if you knew the Ninevites, if you knew the Assyrians, you probably wouldn't blame Jonah. In fact, the Assyrians were known for the despicable tactics of terror. We've got a quote here from a historian who tells us a little bit about this. Throw this up, Tim. The historian Simon Anglim says this, the Assyrians created the world's first great army and the world's first great empire. This was held together by two factors, their superior abilities in siege warfare and their reliance on sheer, unadulterated terror. It was Assyrian policy always to demand that examples be made of those who resisted them. This included deportations of entire peoples and horrific physical punishments. One inscription from a temple in the city of Nimrod records the fate of the leaders of that city of Suru on the Euphrates River who rebelled from and were reconquered by the king. It says this. This is on an actual archaeological find. This is what the king of the Assyrians wrote. I built a pillar at the city gate, and I flayed, that's skinned alive, all the chief men who revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up inside the pillar, and some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. Such punishments, writes the historian, were not uncommon. Though the Assyrians and their armies were respected and feared, they were most of all hated. So it's understandable. He probably used these same tactics against the Jewish people. Jonah knew that. Jonah despised the Assyrians. He despised everything about them. And so, of course, he would rather die than have them hear of God's coming judgment, turn and repent and be saved. You say, man, Jonah has a real hate problem. I say, when's the last time you told somebody about God's judgment due against sin? I have a video I want to show you now. It's uh, from a man named Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller, magician. An atheist, does not know God, does not believe God exists, but he was approached by a Christian and he tells the story of it just days after um, 
So we're just going to watch this video. It's a couple minutes, so just stay tuned and watch his demeanor. Watch how affected he is by the grace of somebody who would tell him about this God. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the, um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And, um... He had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the, uh, the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said... Um, I was here last night at the show, and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted. And he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, "I brought this for you," and he handed me a uh, Gideon Pocket Edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane, I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not, getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. 
and I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. But this guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on. And then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And... Uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave you that book. That's all I wanted to say. How much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them that they might be missing out on eternal life? from a man who doesn't believe that there's eternal life. Well, you say, I'm not certain how or if God will judge like we think he will. I say, what percentage of certainty would equate to severe lack of love if you failed to communicate those chances? 20-80? 70-30? To use Penn's example, what if you only knew there was a 20% chance that that truck would hit that person? How much do you have to lack love for them to not holler out? You say, Dave, that seems to be scare tactics. I don't want people to accept Jesus out of fear. I don't think that's the Jesus way. I say, well, have you read the words of Jesus? Jesus talks about the coming judgment as much or more than anyone. Moreover, let me say this, I'll let you off the hook if, if you, not wanting to be a negative Nancy, choose instead of telling people about the coming judgment to tell them about the wonders of heaven. When's the last time you told somebody about the wonders of heaven for those who trust in Jesus? I think we all struggle with this. I know that I do. Maybe you're different than me. But there is a self-deception to our silence. We say, certainly, certainly, I don't hate people. That's not why I don't tell them about God's eventual judgment coming to all sin and all sinners. I actually love them so much, that's why it's hard for me to tell them. I say, well, I'll grant you that. You probably don't hate them like Jonah hated the Ninevites. In most cases, you don't hate them in that way. But this love that you mention... Is it really for them, or is it for yourself? I've said this, 
We've all probably said this. I just don't want people to discover, or I just do want people to discover the truth on their own timeline. I don't want to be pushy. I don't want to force it. We say this. I don't think me being perceived as one of those judgmental Christians helps. We say this. I'm not really so good at explaining all of that. We say, I don't want to come across as self-righteous better than. We say, what if it ruins my relationship with them? Do you see, do you see though? Are you, are you listening to the line of reasoning? Each of those objections has far more to do with protecting our own self-image, our own reputation, our own comfort, our own status quo, than it has to do with the well-being of the other if we truly believe that there's a chance that they'd miss out on the wonders of heaven and experience the judgment of an all-powerful God. Maybe the main reason we don't tell people the truth isn't outright hate, but it's love for ourself. Is that really that much different than hate? To love ourselves so much more than we love others that we would keep the truth from them? Is that all that different than hate? Let's keep reading Jonah. The first scene in the book of Jonah is the deep sea. We read it. God gives, chapter 1, God gives to Jonah the message to take to the Ninevites because their evil has come before them. And then in verse 3 it says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Out of the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa, that's a port city in, uh, near Israel, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid for the fare, and he went down into it to go then to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load, but Jonah was down in the inner part of the ship. He was hiding. He had laid down. He was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What are you doing, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God, your God, will help us to not perish. Jonah is indifferent. He's indifferent here. He could care less if he dies. Because if he dies then he doesn't have to go take the message to the Ninevites. I'll take him down with me. That's how he's thinking. I'll take him down with me. Look at verse 11. Then they, that's the the sailors, the mariners, said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be quiet? Because Jonah had told him, hey, probably the reason that there's a storm is God's mad that I'm going the wrong direction. This is probably my God, the one true God. And so the mariners say, then what should we do? to make the sea quiet down. And he said to them, verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Now, this is ironic. Jonah is supposed to be the one who serves the God of compassion and loving kindness, and yet it's these skellywags, these men of ill repute, these sailors 
Sailors aren't known as being the most holy of peoples. Have you seen Pirates of the Caribbean? It's a profession that often lacks compassion, but they say, nevertheless, Jonah says, throw me overboard. They say, we'll row harder. We'll save you, my brother, who we've never met, who worships another god. Do you see the irony, the satire? Jonah here being the hateful lack of compassion and the mariners being people that would risk their own lives for a stranger. Nevertheless. Well, anyhow, the storm doesn't calm down, so eventually, begrudgingly, they pick up Jonah, verse 15, and hurl him into the sea at his request, and the sea ceases from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord, and Lord here is Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. They feared him exceedingly, and they offered sacrifices to Yahweh and made vows. And here at verse 17, the only place we see this great fish. And the Lord then appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now what happens in the deep while Jonah's in the belly of the whale? That's all of chapter two. We won't even read it, but it's a prayer, a song that Jonah sings out to God because God has saved him. Even though he wanted to die, God saves him. And so Jonah rightly responds through praise for the God of compassion. What should be popping in your head? Satire. Yes, he gets it right that God does save even those who don't want to be saved. And he praises rightly, but this isn't Jonah doing the right thing. It's ironic. It's satirical. Of course, Jonah, of course, now you respond in praise of Yahweh. Because he rescued you, even though Jonah was being a real turd, God rescued him. <laughs> Just say amen if that's you. <laughs> and what does this satire reveal? It reveals something very important. We love God's compassion and his salvation and his rescue when it's for us. But do we love it nearly the same? when we think of it for other people. Oh, how crooked our hearts. The second scene begins in chapter 3. It's the scene of the city. Look at the beginning. Actually, look at the last verse of chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish. God controls each and every sovereign over all things. He talked to the fish and said, vomit Jonah, and vomits Jonah up onto dry land. And then beginning of chapter 3, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was ex an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, and he gives his message, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the end of it. Doesn't give a lot of context. <laughs> he just does the bare minimum that God <laughs> told him to do. And look what happens, verse 5, because God had been softening their hearts. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They don't even know, like the sailors did, the name of God. Because guess who didn't tell them? Jonah. He told the sailors, he didn't tell the Ninevites because he really hates the Ninevites. It's like maybe if they get his name wrong, God won't save them. They believe, though. Whoever this God is that you talk of, we believe. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth 
from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now that just means, that's just a way in the ancient Near East people would do this when they truly are repentant and lamenting. They would, they would take off their royal clothes or their nice clothes and they'd put on sackcloth to show that they're truly mourning and remorseful for their sin. That's what's going on here. And they would spread ashes and they would sit in the ashes to just show that they are nothing, that they're humbling themselves. Verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with a sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The king of the greatest empire that had ever existed prior to Alexander the Great. So think of Alexander the Great doing this when he hears about the coming judgment of God. This is unreal. This is incredible. And so then, verse 7, the king issues a proclamation. He published it through Nineveh, and he tells everybody to repent to put on sackcloth and to cry out for forgiveness from this God. In verse 9 he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then verse 10, When God saw what they did, they turned from their evil ways. God relented of of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah goes into the city. It's a huge city. Three days it took him to find the right people, the officials that he needed to tell his message to, so at least he got that right. And then, like a cold breath on the back of your neck, the message went throughout the whole body, the whole city of Nineveh. There was shivers sent, and the people repented and humbled themselves and asked God, the one true God, for forgiveness. And God saw. He saw not just the outward signs of the sackcloth and the ashes. He saw truly that in their heart they were repentant, that in their heart they believed that they had offended God by their actions. And they turned. They turned. Now we know from history that that turning was not long-lasting. So it was a momentary repentance. Not the same kind of repentance for those of us who turned to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It was a temporary turning because God would ultimately bring disaster because they'd go back to their evil ways. But this is the gospel, my friends. God has stored up disaster that is due for all sin, yours and mine. And he had been planning to one day unleash it Though he was patient and we knew not the day, he was hoping that we'd turn. And when we do turn from our evil, we repent, we confess our sin, we truly have a contrite heart, God turns from giving us what he has planned to give to us and he turns and he places that on his own son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. God turns. When we repent, God relents. But to do that, he had to punish his own son. Scene number three, chapter four here. This is the plant. So Jonah is not excited. (laughs) He's not excited that the Ninevites have found God's forgiveness. They've truly encountered the character of the one true God and God has shown them compassion. He does not like that. 
Let's read it again, chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country when I was back home? That's why I fled. That's why I went as far away from the Ninevites as I could. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, take my life. It's better to die than to live. He is so disappointed that his enemies don't get God's judgment that he would rather die. He tried to die on the boat. Tried to get thrown overboard. God saved him. He wants to die now. And he's sitting east of the city on a hill, sulking, and the sun is beating down on him. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out to the city, sat on the east side of the city, made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would happen to the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, a vine, is actually the Hebrew word here, and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. You see that? Even though he is throwing a pity party, saying, how could you save my enemies? God still brings up shade over his head. So Jonah, look at this. Remember, he was exceedingly angry. Now it says Jonah was exceedingly glad because of this plant. Again, think of, I love when the Lord gives me compassion, gives me kindness. You see it? You see yourself? But when dawn came, verse 7, when the next day came up, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die for a third time. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. And then God teaches Jonah one last lesson. One last lesson. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you you do, you do well to be angry for the plant? See, Jonah's now mad at the plant for withering. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. <laughs> and, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night? Verse 11. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. And then in a very odd ending, and also much cattle. <laughs> now, now, don't you want to know what that means? I'm going to tell you here. But do you see the satire? Do you see the comedy of this? God is, is laughing at Jonah. He's like, you had nothing to do with the plant growing. It's God's plant. And you have nothing to do with the Ninevites becoming a nation. That's on me. They're my people. I created them. They are image bearers of me. Even though they don't know it, even though Penn doesn't know it, God created him and gave him his gifts and gave him his talents. God is the God of Penn. Gillette. God is the God of the Ninevites, whether they acknowledge it or not, just like the plant is God's, and the worm was God's, and the whale was God's. It's all God's, and so who are you, Jonah, to tell God what he can and cannot do, and who he can and cannot save? 
The word pity here means to look upon with compassion. Yes, they are exceedingly evil, God says. Yes, the Ninevites are immoral. Yes, they are worshiping themselves and they are worshiping false gods. But they are still made in my image. Let's give them a chance to repent. You see the heart of God? Anyone and everyone who repents, to them God will relent and place their judgment upon his son Jesus. God's heart for people is so much greater than our hearts. We, we might forgive a friend who wrongs us, maybe. God forgives his greatest enemies. You see, do you see this? I mean, if we could even tap into a tenth of the heart of God, the amount of love we would have for other people. Now, let me explain to you this cattle. This is important. Verse 11, and should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not have great compassion on Nineveh? And here's what he says. They are a great city. This is a world-class city. This is an amazing city in which there are more than 120,000 persons and also cattle. Yes, there's much sin. Yes, there's darkness. Yes, there's evil. But God loves cities for two reasons. The first, it might be obvious, there's people in cities, lots of people, lots of image bearers of God. God loves people. God loves cities. Now the cattle. Back in that day, cattle was a sign of power and influence. Nineveh was a great global city. It was a powerful city. There were culture makers, power brokers, global influencers. And God says, I care about this city because from this city great things can come and spread to other parts of my good world. God loves city because there's people there and because there's cultural influence. Yes, it's full of sin. Yes, they need to repent, but I love the city, the great city of Nineveh. Now, historically, especially in the last hundred years, Christians have been slow on the uptake when it comes to loving city like God loves the cities. God still loves cities because in the cities, there are lots of people. And in the cities, there are culture makers who then take those messages and truths and ways of being to the rest of the world. But Christians have been afraid of the darkness and the sin and the evil of the cities, and so historically we have left the cities to avoid the dirty people. I think God's calling us back to the cities. If you don't know what I'm going to say next, I don't want to steal your aha. Guess what Seattle is? Seattle is Nineveh. Seattle is Nineveh. 120,000 people, seven times that in Seattle. Cattle? Oh, we've got cattle. 
Have you driven around and seen some of the houses in Seattle? We've got some serious cattle. We've got culture makers and wealth with global influence. We export truth and culture and ways of living. We export it from this city. We are Nineveh. We are trendsetters, moral exporters. We are Nineveh. And when me and Allie were living in Colorado, I was born here in the Seattle area, but when we were living in Colorado, we said to ourselves, we love Colorado. Remember the weather this week? That's every week in Colorado. There's sun, and you know what? There's enough Texans in Colorado that there's something of a cultural buffer, so you can kind of find some people from different streams of morality. (laughs) If you've been to Denver, you know what I'm talking about. We loved Denver. It felt comfortable to us. We didn't want to leave. We honestly kept asking God, are you sure you want us to go back? Are you sure you want us to go to Seattle? And the thing we felt about Seattle is probably the thing that Jonah felt. It felt like we put on a wet jacket every time we thought about ministering to the people of Seattle. And I'll tell you what, there was some real hatred for the people of Seattle. There are people that I love who had been affected by the people of Seattle who have been torn down by the people of Seattle. My God, who I worship, have been torn down by the people of Seattle. Jesus, my Savior, had been torn down by the people of Seattle. I had some heart issues to wrestle with. I wanted to stay in Colorado. But by the grace of God, I didn't flee from the calling. And God brought me here because Seattle is Nineveh. In Seattle, people don't know their right hand from their left. They're lost. They're morally lost. They don't know how to find God. They're experiencing much folly. They are unaware that they are on the wrong side of God's judgment. Unless, unless, unless somebody who knows the truth tells them. That's me. That's you. Somebody needs to tell them. Well, guess what? Just like Jonah, whether out of hatred for the enemies of God in our city or, as we've said, love for ourselves, we will be tempted to flee this city. We will be tempted to isolate ourselves from the dirty, dark, unchristian segments of this city. We will be tempted to hang out with those who look like us, act like us, go to church like us. Unless, unless, We act like Jonah. What? What? I thought Jonah was the anti-hero. Well, he is. Until you think about this. How do we know that Jonah fled to Tarshish? How do we know that God called Jonah to go to Nineveh? How do we know that Jonah was sitting in the belly of a whale for three days? How do we know the prayer that Jonah prayed when he was in the whale? How do we know that Jonah got called a second time and went to Nineveh and told Nineveh? How do we know that this plant grew up out of Nineveh? Nobody else was there except for Jonah. Guess what? Jonah, after asking God to kill him three times, and God didn't, realized his heart. And he repented. And he confessed publicly for the lack of love that he had for his enemies. That's why we have the book of Jonah, because Jonah talked about it. Jonah He told the not-so-flattering story of Jonah. 
Jonah also is our example of repentance and a turning from hate to love. And so we have a question that we ask of ourselves. Which Jonah will we be? The first Jonah, who hates those who are not like him, who keeps the truths of God's compassion and forgiveness a secret, who runs away from God's calling in his life? Or will we be the second Jonah, who recognizes the pride of his heart, who acknowledges his self-love and confesses it out loud, who repents of his failure to obey God, and who tells his story with raw authenticity and hides not behind favorable spin and excuses. And who God now uses because Jonah told his story publicly. And God uses it again and again and again, and he's using it today, again, to bring glory to the fame of the God of almighty love. Like Jonah, God's giving us another chance to get it right, to start living with a heart as big as his, a heart big and bold enough to tell the world around us, to tell this city of Nineveh, to tell them the truths that they desperately need to hear. That's love. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would expose our hearts to ourselves. Help us to see where we might have lingering hate for this city, hate for the people who are enemies of God, who do not know their right hand from their left. Help us to know who we truly are. Which Jonah are we? God, we know that Jesus, the Christ, your son, he was the better Jonah. God asked him to come into this dark and sinful place and Jesus left his home. He left the comfort and the glory of the angels singing to him daily to go and be born into this dark and sinful world. He delivered his message, Jesus did. His message of grace through faith. He delivered it clearly and powerfully and he did give up his life freely. Not as Jonah tried to, not to escape, not in remorse, but because his calling was to die for the sins of the world. And like Jonah, Jesus slept in the belly of the earth three days, and he stayed and he waited until God powerfully raised him from the dead, proving that it is finished, that our sin now, no matter how deep and how dark and how far we've run from God is not too much for us to be reunited to God's loving kindness, his compassion and his grace and his mercy. And God will relent of the disaster that's coming to us if we turn to Jesus and accept him as our Lord and Savior. God, I pray for my friends here today that are not yet Christians, God, that they would repent, that they would hear your message of love, they would hear of your kindness and your compassion, and they would turn to you and fall upon your grace and sit in sackcloth and ashes and say, I'm not worthy, but I accept the gift. God, if they prayed that prayer in their heart right now, God, may they know that they are right with you. 
that you have placed all that wrath and judgment on Jesus Christ and not on them, and now they are clean, that you see them as you see your son, that you are their father. God, we pray for those people, and we pray for those of us who have already accepted this message, God, that we would not keep it a secret and we would proclaim it, that truth would be known in this city, that we would be said to be good people because we did not hide the truth. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.